you'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. Let's pray as we come to the Word. Father God, thank you for the gift of your Word. Thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus, Father. Thank you for the way that he teaches us wisdom. Father, thank you for the way that he gave himself for us. Father, pray now as we listen to his words that you'd speak to us and you would change us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, last time, we finished, we were doing the Beatitudes last time, and we said that the world is set against Christians. We saw that Jesus talked about being blessed if you were persecuted, as uh, Christians were, were spoken against, as Christians were intimidated. And if that is how the world treats Christians, then how are Christians to engage with the world? There are lots of different answers and ideas in the church today. I think actually it's one of the most crucial issues that the church faces. How do we engage with the world around us? Some people think that the church should sort of keep their heads down and have no relationship to the world. Uh, You know, the the, uh, world passes on and we carry on doing what we've always done. Caught in a time warp of the culture of the 1950s or the 1980s or sometimes even the 1680s. You know, if it's good enough for King James I, then it's good enough for Queen Elizabeth II. That's what they say, isn't it? Some people think that we should spend our time condemning or moaning about the world. Look at them out there. Good job we're not like them. Bunch of sinners. And it's getting worse all the time. I recently spoke to a minister who said he could do nothing in his area because uh, they were the wrong sort of people. Uh, Some ruffians from Newcastle had moved in. And there was no longer anything for the church to do as well. You know, just all awful out there. Some people think we should change to become like the world. You know, change whatever it takes to be relevant to the world around us. Don't ever contradict them. Because you mustn't be seen as irrelevant. This is 2020 after all. The problem is that none of these ideas represent well what the Bible says. And I think if we end up in any of these positions, we end up in big trouble. Thankfully, Jesus was not silent on the subject. He has a strategy for his people in the world. His people are to be salt and they're to be light. And as we'll see, that's actually much tougher than any of the other options that we've just looked at. But it's the way Jesus wants his followers to engage with the world. But what does it mean to be salt and light? Well, first of all, we are salt. Just have a look again at verses... Uh, Just verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We are to be salt. Now I spent the, the week reading through different people's opinions on what this is all about, what salt is all about. Salt was used as a preservative for food. Uh, And in the same way, the disciples are to preserve society from moral decay. That's what I read in one commentary. Salt was used to season food. And in the same way, the disciples are to season the world and make it less bland, make it more exciting. Salt was used on dung heaps as fertiliser. Not really sure where that's going. Uh, Salt was used on fields to stop crops growing if you're oversalted. Salt was associated with covenant. Salt is associated with the fire of judgment. Salt is associated with sacrifice. Salt is associated with wisdom. Salt is all those things. You can go away and look them up. 
Salt was used for all sorts of things. But let me cut through all that. As much as I respect uh, those people who said those different things, the main point of salt here is that it's salty. That's the main point about salt here, is that it's salty. That's what our passage tells us. It has to be salty if it's to do what it's supposed to do. In whatever context it's used, it's supposed to make an impact. In food, it's supposed to change the flavour. In preservatives, it's supposed to preserve. In fertilisers, it's supposed to fertilise. It has an impact on its surroundings. And if it doesn't have an impact on its surroundings, then what's the point? What's the point of salt? Why would you put salt on your food if it didn't taste of anything? Why would you use salt as preservative if it didn't actually stop the meat from going bad? Why would you use salt as fertiliser if it didn't actually fertilise? Salt is supposed to make an impact on its surroundings. And to do that, it has to be salty. If there's no difference from whatever it's going into, then what's the point? Why would you do it? And this is big, uh, Jesus' big challenge to us here. What use is salt if it isn't salty anymore? That's what he says, isn't it? You see that there? But if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is the point of salt that's no longer salty? What use are Christians if they are impacted in some way the world around them? Because they've lost what makes them distinctive in the world. You see, the call here is not to be salt. Jesus doesn't say be salt. He says you are salt. Salt is what we are as Christians. We can't help it in one way. The challenge, the call, is to be salty salt. To be what God meant us to be. To be all those things we were talking about last week in the Beatitudes. Meek, pure in heart. Hungry and thirsty for righteousness. As Jesus speaks, he's surrounded by people who had been called to be God's people. Jews from all over the region had come to hear him speak. He's talking to people who were supposed to be salt. Supposed to be God's people. But they lost their saltiness. I mean, sure, they were distinctive, the Jews around him. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They went to temple or to synagogue. They were very religious. I mean, this was the age of the Pharisees. We imagine there's quite a lot of Pharisees around here. But they weren't distinctive where it really counts. And a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be aimed at this kind of outward distinctiveness that people thought was enough. Actually, most of that outward showingness showed that their hearts were actually far from what God wanted them to be. They were playing the world's game, if you like, but with God's rules. That's really what the Pharisees were doing. Keeping the letter of the law, but not the spirit. So Jesus is talking about a different distinctiveness here. A distinctiveness that flows from a changed heart. A distinctiveness that impacts the world around it like salt in bland food. So with salt, we need to ask ourselves two questions if we are to be salty salt. First question we need to ask is, are we distinct in the right way? 
And the second question we need to ask is, are we, being, are we making an impact? Are we distinct in the right way, firstly? Well, we can be distinct in the wrong way, can't we? When I became a Christian in my early teens, uh, some people encouraged me to sort of learn a whole new subculture of Christianity. Uh, you know, rubbers with rainbows on. Uh, guitar. I, didn't, I didn't play the guitar there, so I didn't have a rainbow guitar strap so much. But there was Christian bands, from rap to reggae, and you sort of needed to know who they were to sort of fit in. Christian clothing. Uh, I was once told by someone when I turned up with a tie on uh, one Sunday uh, as a 15-year-old that I was now addressing appropriately for God, uh, meeting with God. Um, it's one of the reasons why I generally don't wear a tie, is, is against the idea that, you know, well, John the Baptist didn't wear a tie, Jesus didn't wear a tie, as though that is the only way that we can dress. But there's a sort of Christian way to dress sometimes. There were activities that Christians did and didn't do, and you had to learn what they were. So I was told, for example, that Christians in the North, they were okay with playing card games. But Christians in the South, they looked down on people who played card games. You had to be careful about what you did. I mean, those things will make you distinct how you dress, what you do. But they're distinct in completely the wrong way. Any adherent to any religion will be distinct, won't they? Sikhs wear turbans. Muslims pray five times a day to Mecca. Even ethical vegans who now have, have been granted protection status this week, will be distinct, you know, to look sort of pasty and, and well. <laughs> I'm only joking there, because that's probably classed as discrimination uh, now, so uh, vegan, you know, that can be very healthy. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. But any, any sort of philosophy or religion that you follow will make you distinct, won't it? As believers, though, we want to be distinct in who we are. We want it to be something on the inside, don't we, that we're different. That might affect what we listen to and what we wear and what we do, but that won't just mean adopting a new subculture that separates us unnecessarily from our friends, neighbours and family. So we're to be distinct in who we are. We're to be distinct in being like Jesus, as we saw last week. But even if we are distinct... It's still possible that we don't make an impact. That was the second question, wasn't it? How do we make an impact? Salt must be salted, must be spread. There was a book about this in the 90s called Out of the Shot Salt Shaker Into the World. It's one of those books that if you get the idea of the title, you really understand the book. The point is that salt is no use being kept inside the salt shaker. There's a real danger for evangelicals, isn't there, for us to sit in our salt shaker, our salt cellar, moaning about how bland the food is out there, when actually we're supposed to be out and about in our communities. There's zero use in us coming here on a Sunday morning and playing pious, and then locking ourselves away for the rest of the week, either metaphorically or physically. We need to be out in the world, making an impact. But the challenge here is we won't make an impact if we're not distinct, if we're not different. So that's the first point. We are salt. Second point is that we are light. Let me read those verses to you again, verse 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory uh, to your Father who is in heaven. The disciples are called to be the light of the world. In fact, they're told they are the light of the world. Now, this is not the only time the idea appears in the Bible. Twice in Scripture, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. So you see on the back of your notice sheets, John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he says something very similar in John 9, verse 5. So whatever light we have as Christians, really it's a reflection of Jesus' light. He's the true light of the world. But that, even that is not the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. It's an idea that we see in the Old Testament as well. Israel was supposed to be the light of the nations, the light of the world. So Isaiah 49 verse 6, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Israel, you see, was supposed to be a light shining across the world, that people far and wide could see God's salvation. Israel was supposed to be a missionary nation in that sense. It was supposed to be reaching out to the world around it. The closest we see is under Solomon, as kings and queens from all over the world come to see Solomon uh, and the, the wisdom that God has given him. That's sort of a high point in the Old Testament as we see the nations flooding in. But it's only a glimpse. It's hardly really a fulfilment of Israel's role as a knight to the nation. <laughs> Indeed, Paul writes in Romans 2, alluding to another passage in Isaiah, Romans 2.24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Israel, instead of being a light to the nations, has become a cause for the nations to curse God. But now Jesus enters the scene, the true light of the world, fulfilling all that Israel was supposed to be. And his followers in him become the light of the world, shining Christ's light into the darkness around them. But there can still be a problem here. Look again at verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a, bas- under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The picture is someone who has a lamp. Uh, probably in those days you'd only have one lamp per room, you know, sort of one light. But instead of putting it on a stand to give light to the whole room, they put it under a basket. Now, the idea there is probably something a bit heavier, a bit like a sort of giant measuring jug made out of earthenware that you'd sort of use to measure grain. No light is getting out of that if you put it on top. I always think a basket, you'd still see it. But no, this is a a heavy earthenware jug. The light is there, but no one can see it. Which then begs the question, what's the point of having a light if you're going to put it under one of these jugs? What use is a light if you can't see it? Who buys an opaque lampshade, you know, the one that sort of covers it all the way around? You can get all sorts of different colours of light bulbs now. I, I, I always struggle to know which colour of white I'm supposed to get for our house. You know, there's all sorts of different whites. But no one buys black light bulbs, do they? What would be the point? It makes no sense. So just as salt was meant to be spread, light is meant to shine. 
Light that doesn't shine is pointless. What is the light that Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about our good works. You see that there in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here assumes that a believer will be doing good works. After all, Paul writes in Titus, Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. One of his purposes, one of Jesus' purposes of dying on the cross was to purchase for himself a people zealous for good works. So I think before we talk about being seen, we have to talk about uh, those things being done. What are the good works that it's referring to? Well, I can do no better than take us back to Isaiah, where we saw the picture of what Israel is to be. If you just turn up in your Bibles, Isaiah 59, so I haven't got the page numbers, so you might need to pull them out. Isaiah 59. Has someone got the large print one? 689 in the large print, smaller print if you can read it. <laughs> I think the number's probably even smaller. It'll be about half that anyway. <laughs> okay, Isaiah 59. Let me, uh, I'm going to read the uh, whole chapter to us just to get an idea about what these good works were to be. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden your face from you, so he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, uh, for your lips have spoken lies. Sorry, I'm thinking I've got the wrong chapter. <laughs> Just bear with me a second. It might be Isaiah 49. <laughs> ah, Isaiah 58. There we go, it's the chapter before. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> here we go. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, and a day acceptable to the Lord? 
Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of the wicked of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring your homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, your healing shall spring up speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rearguard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer, you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke of, from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. For the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall rise up, raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be recalled the repairer of the breach the restorer of the streets to dwell in. We'll stop there. Do you see there that God is telling them what he expects? And he's saying that if you do this, your light will break forth. You see, God is not after fasts and strict Sabbath keeping. If you look at verses 6 and 7, you see he's talking about loosing the bonds of wickedness, working towards the freedom of the oppressed, sharing your bread with the hungry, Bringing the needy people into your home. Clothing the naked. And what will happen then? Verses 8 to 10. Your light will break forth like the dawn. And then verse 10. Your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as noonday. That's what it means to be the light of the world. That is what light is that's to pour out. Those are the good works that he's talking about in Matthew. Are we pouring ourselves out for the hungry? Are we satisfying the desires of the afflicted? Jesus did this, didn't he, when he came into the world as the true light of the world. But he calls us to do the same. In Matthew's Gospel, later on in Matthew 25, he'll speak about people who have uh, given food to the hungry, who are people who are thirsty and given drink to, strangers who were welcomed. He's really alluding back to this passage in Isaiah. And he says to them, they, they ask him, when did we uh, see you like this? And Jesus answered, um, and when you uh, did this, uh, uh, the king answered them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. Jesus is expecting that actually disciples will do this. He says these are the people who are welcomed into the kingdom. These sorts of things are the marks of a Christian. They're the outcome of the sort of character that we saw last week in the Beatitudes. Now I should make it clear, this is not the mission of the church corporately. The mission of the church is the Great Commission to make disciples. That's what we're to do. But these are the sort of things that disciples do. As individual Christians, are we doing these sorts of things? Are we pouring ourselves out for the needy? I want us to feel that challenge this morning. I'm speaking to myself too. He assumes that we're doing good works that will shine. So we have to be doing these things as his disciples. 
Now, this can get a bit confusing as we go back to Matthew. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to have a go at people who sort of make a big show of doing good works. So how, how do we do this without being a show, without doing what he's going to tell us not to do later? Well, I think there's a fine line to be drawn here. The thing is that we are, we are to be seen to do good works. But we're not to do good works to be seen. I'll say that again. We are to be seen to do good works. But we are not to do good works to be seen. Jesus will go on to criticise those people who just want to be seen. Their motive is, is to be praised by people. So Matthew 6 verse 1. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. They want to be seen by people and bring glory to themselves. And Jesus says actually they get their rewards. They get the praise of people. But Christians do these things to be seen by God and bring glory to him. And Jesus said they get their reward too. As others see their works and give glory to God. But if they're the same works on the surface of things, so, you know, pouring yourself out for the needy, if they're the same works on the surface of things, why does one result in glory to man and the other result in glory to God? Well, the answer has to be that those works have an accompanying commentary. What I mean by this is that as we do these works, we will be explaining in one form or another why we're doing them. We will explain, be explaining in some form or another the good news about Jesus as we do them. You see, good works alone in the world will lead to praise for you. Look at the statues and the plaques and the wards and the wings that litter our land, giving praise to the people who did those generous things. But it's praise to people, isn't it? But you see, good works minus gospel equals praise to man. Good works plus gospel equals praise to God. If we tell people why we're doing things, they'll be able to know that we are not the ones to praise. God is the one to praise. And there are Christians that I know like this. Not famous ones, but ones that are so full of good works that they couldn't actually keep it secret if they tried. People know that they are a Christian. And people also know that they're not in it for the recognition. When those people share the gospel with their friends, it is powerful. Because it's backed up by a life that's so obviously been changed by God. Their good works adorn the gospel. Their light shines more brightly in the darkness. Is that you? Is that me? If people were to look into our lives, would they see a life characterised by good works? Do we have lives that people can look into? Or are we locked away at home? So we are to be salt and light, distinctive in the right way, spread across our communities, shining with good works and the truth of the gospel. In other words, we're to be a city on a hill. That's the picture Jesus uses. Seen by our community, indeed unable to hide. If we work at being salty salt, 
if we work at shining a light across our towns and villages, then we become a true city on a hill, a refuge for those around, a light at the end of the tunnel for those who are lost. Now, things like a new building, they will help us become more visible as a group, won't they? But what will people find when they look in? Will they find people stuck in the old days, reminiscing about how much better it was in the 80s, where they don't fit in because they have a 21st century culture? Or will they find us looking at our noses, at down our noses, sorry, I'm looking at our noses, looking down our noses at them, judging them for their behaviour when we're no better, imposing arbitrary rules on what is and isn't acceptable based on what's always been done? Or will they find that we're just the same as everybody else, not distinctive in any way? In which case, what will we have to offer them that they don't already have? Or will they find a community zealous for good works, making an impact on the world around them, being salt and light in the world? And we'll need to be salt and light in the world as well, because having nicer doors doesn't make people come through them, unfortunately. Most people in Otley or in Ilkley would never purposely walk through a church door, wherever you put it. How are we going to reach them? By being salt and light. This is how we engage with the world, by being scattered in our community. We gather for support and encouragement, that's what we do on a Sunday in life groups and in other times. And then we scatter for mission and saltiness in our world. The main impact that we have will not happen on a Sunday, but in between. When salt is scattered, when the basket is lifted. But some of the impact will be as we gather, not just on a Sunday, but midweek. When two lights come together, they make a brighter light, don't they? When all of us come together, we are that city on the hill, that light shining brightly. And in between, we have to be children of light. Grains of salt influencing those around us with the truth of the gospel in word and deed. So let's pray that God would bless our saltiness and that Otley and beyond will be one for the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, help us to be salt and light. Father, we thank you that your word says that we are. So Father, we pray that we would be salty salt this week. Father, help us to be distinctive in the way that we live and what we're living for. Father, help us to be light shining brightly with our works across our communities. Father, pray that we'd be those sorts of Christians that means that we can't help but people find out that we're doing good works. Father, help us to watch our hearts. Father, help us not to do these things to be seen by other people. But Father, pray that you would see our good works and that others would see our good works and give glory to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.